0: From fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada, you are listening to the Walkertown Report. Welcome to the Walkertown Report. My guest today is a uh, has done everything. He's been a videographer, filmmaker, uh, artist, collage artist. His book, his uh, collages have uh, and other artworks have graced uh, everything from Hustler magazine to high-end art magazines. And I've got some of uh, his videos, and uh, right here, this is his latest, Larry Wessel's Palace of Wonders. And then we do have some other videos, uh, Sugar and Spice. Uh, this one, which I hope to talk about later, Ultra Megalopolis. And then, of course, uh, the classic really is a Tarballium uh, about bullfighting. And most recently, uh, he's publicizing. He's, he has a book coming out. Uh, that he's working on. And, uh, here, here's the cover, uh, King of the Underground, Another Moments of Clarity. And I figure that's probably a best place to start because, you know, the book's about, well, you. I mean, from beginning to end. So to talk about the book is to talk about you and talk about your movies. Um uh, tell me a little bit more about the book that'll be coming out.
1: Well, it's, uh, a, a memoir and, uh, there are no, rules attached to memoir writing you you just uh tell true stories about your life and in this case uh i'm focusing on what i call moments of clarity and these are moments throughout my life that i remember you know like with great clarity and and moments that taught me a lesson of some sort so um i thought uh that would be a really fun road to go down memory lane. And I've written a lot of stories in the past and decided that it, 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 now's the time, after finishing my last documentary, um, I thought I, I always have to start in on something right away. And so I thought, well, I'll put my book together. And it's something I can do at home, and I don't have to risk uh, – getting the COVID virus, you know, mingling with other people. And um, I'm very comfortable being at home in my studio. And uh, writing is uh, a very reclusive uh, uh, activity. And uh, so it, it, it fits like a glove. So, yeah, I'm putting these stories together. And very recently, I've been going through my photo archive, I want the memoir to be profusely illustrated and um, so I'm going through family photos and photographs that I've taken as well uh, throughout the past and I want to pepper the whole thing with photographs and you know one of the things that I find annoying sometimes with the way photographs are displayed in books is that they just stick them in the middle somewhere you know, in, a, in like a thin little section in the middle, and then you kind of skim through the tiny little thumbnail photos, and I don't want it to be like that. I, I want to, uh, if it's a good photograph, then I think it should have the display of a good photograph, a full-page display, so that's my idea uh, so far. It's a work in progress, so we'll see how it goes, but right now I'm having a lot of fun just
0: going through the archives, uh, digging up old photographs. Well, I'm sure they've been a lot. I mean, you're you're still Manhattan Beach, correct? Yeah, that's that's where my home is. You're right. So, what is um, how how long have you been in uh, Southern California? I guess I mean you've been there for for your entire life. Is that correct?
1: Pretty much. I mean, there were there was one moment when I, in fact, I write about it in the or When I was uh, 20 years old, I uh, fell in love with a. Uh, uh, Waitress, um, a local waitress uh, at a late-night diner, and it was like a whirlwind romance that that got me to jump into her Volkswagen bug and head off to Colorado. So I spent about a half a year in Colorado, in Inglewood, Colorado, and um, that's the only... Time that I haven't lived in Southern California. I've lived in different neighborhoods in Southern California. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hollywood and Echo Park and even Hermosa Beach for a, a brief time. But, um, the only time I ever really lived outside the state was that one time when I was 20 years old and, uh, and I moved off to Inglewood, Colorado.
0: No. <laughs> well, how, how did you, how did you adapt? I mean, did you come away like thinking, uh, I, I'm just never going to leave California again or, uh, um, you know, or do you, do you actually have an appreciation for uh, Colorado? Well,
1: the appreciation I had, bear in mind I was 20 years old, was that it seemed to me at that time, and this one must have been around 1977. Uh, Colorado seemed to be about 10 years behind um, Southern California Los Angeles. So uh, I could go to a used record shop, for instance, and find all these treasures that were just like practically um, at bargain basement prices. I mean, very collectible records. And, and so that that really got me excited, and I uh, I ended up hoarding a huge bunch of records from the local record shops, and then uh, mailing them back home. And uh, um, so culturally, it just seemed to be about ten years behind Los Angeles. So I found that to be an advantage. I I was almost uh, I felt like I was almost. Uh, um, visiting from visiting from the future
0: you know? <laughs> well, that, what were some of your first creative steps like I mean what what came first like movie making or art or painting actually,
1: actually the very first thing was still photography and it was oddly enough I mean I was really kind of a dark kid like I was really into horror. And horror movies. And I remember like having conversations in kindergarten on the playground about Frankenstein and Dracula and the Wolfman. And I was growing up in a, the culture of the early sixties, which was a monster culture and there were monster movies on TV all the time, especially on Saturday afternoons. I would make sure that I was at home so that I could watch Chiller, which was a presentation of old horror movies, you know. And it was and this was way before, you know, videotape or any of that stuff. The only way you could see stuff was on TV. Yeah. So you had to mark it on, on your mark your TV guides every week and make sure that you were able to watch all the things you wanted to watch. But um even though my obsession was film, uh photography I had a cheap camera, and it was it was easy to take photographs and uh, I uh, got a friend of mine, a neighborhood friend of mine who's the same age as me, and this was when I was about uh, ten, eleven years old, and I would take pictures of him um, like he was dead, like laying on the ground like uh, we, we put makeup like a pale makeup on his face. To make him look like he was dead and, and a little ketchup trickling off of the corner of his mouth, like it, like he had, uh, died violently somehow. And that was like, that was the beginning of, uh, of my creativity, I think. I mean, outside of, you know, drawing cartoons and, and, uh, I remember in kindergarten, uh, there was a great emphasis, uh, on, on painting. And everybody, every kid had an easel and we were always painting, you know, so <clears throat> my mother taught me to draw when I was even before that, even before kindergarten. So, um, I was pretty creative and, uh, and, and also like with literature, like my, my dad mom, you know, would read to me poetry and, and, uh, and sit me on their laps and tell me stories. And so I was into literature before I even, Went to kindergarten and, and, the same with, uh, with classical music and jazz music. Uh, there was always b- great music to listen to at home and my parents turned me on to all kinds of magnificent, uh, musicians and singers and poets and writers and, uh, and movies and, and, uh, and, uh, that's how I, I really, uh, they would take me to the movies, uh, every weekend and so, I tell people that you know I was never baptized in, in any religion other than cinema and the uh movie theater was my church and uh, the the cinema was really uh my bible it was like uh how I learned to make films was like watching the films of Alfred Hitchcock on television and seeing uh you know um Movies like Fantasia at the at the movies. My my folks would even go so far as to drive all the way up to Hollywood for the premiere of, like what, what we saw, uh, we saw a uh... a screening of um, Fantasia up at, up in Hollywood. And the same with Ray uh, Ray Harryhausen and, and uh, Jason and the Argonauts. I saw that at the movies when I was a kid, and these films were fantastic and mind-blowing, and they really, uh, uh, affected my creativity, I believe, you know, and, uh, so my, I was kind of, uh, um, subjected to a lot of culture when I was a child, and, uh, this included art museum exhibits as well, you know, so I was very, very well-rounded, um, culturally, uh, before I even entered school, and, uh, yeah. I, yeah, my first, the first film, uh, films I made were also really gruesome, like, uh, the very first film I made was called, uh, what was it called The Black Glove? Now where I got this idea, I, have not, I haven't seen any of the Dario or Geno movies, you know, that where the, the bad guy's always wearing black leather gloves, but I, uh, it involved a mysterious killer who wore a black glove and wielded a a huge knife, you know, and, uh, and he, uh, he sneaks up behind this old man in a rocking chair. It was played by my friend wearing an old rubber old man mask. And, um, and he gets, he's just about to stab him. And the old man wakes up in in fear and runs out of the house. And so the, uh, the killer runs after him. And that was, that was kind of like, it was, it was all all that we could fit on an eight millimeter spool of film. Oh yeah! And we got the eight millimeter camera from uh, my friend's uh, father's closet. We just grabbed it and asked him if we could use it. And we uh, there was one roll of eight mill unused eight millimeter film, and we we used that. Well, after I saw the magic of that projected, I saved my paper route money and i bought a uh, a little kodak uh super 8 movie camera and that was just the begin uh, the very first film i made with that was a kind of an inventory of my uh, mad magazine collection and i i just like uh, i shot a couple frames of each mad magazine i had a huge mad magazine collection too and that's part of how i learned to read my my dad would, uh, read Bad Magazine* to me when I was a toddler, and, uh, you know, sitting on his knee, and he'd read, uh, and I think a lot of this darkness does come from my father because, uh, he would read to me Edgar Allan Poe, and Robert Service, and, uh, and, and all of Shelley, all, all these really kind of gothic, scary poets and authors, and, uh, that got me, that fired my imagination. And that's what I, as a kid, that's what I was really into. Not so much today, uh-huh. uh, as a 64 year old adult, I've gotten all of that, all of that darkness out of my system. I think right. I, I don't really enjoy horror movies anymore, but right. I, I sure did when I was a kid. That was a big thing, you know. Oh, and, uh, reading, uh, famous monsters of film land magazine. Yeah. Well,
0: he, he showed up in one of your movies. He did.
1: I, I was lucky enough to befriend him, (laughs) excuse me, and visit his Acker Mansion. He called it his Acker Mansion in Carla, Florida. That was this one, right? Uh, Ultra Megalopolis? Uh, oh no, it's a, it's one you don't have. It's called Sex, Death, and the Hollywood Mystique. Oh, you know, I
0: do have it, but I don't have I don't um, have the cover. I don't think it survived the fire, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and all the Oh dear. And all. So I okay, have the well. No, not a literal fire. I just mean from moving and all, but I think oh, I have the video. Oh, okay. I'm not sure that I still have the artwork for the cover, but, but yeah. yeah, yeah, that's where I saw it then. Uh, yeah. in the, the Hollywood, or Sex Death in the Hollywood Mystique.
1: Sex Death in the Hollywood Mystique features, uh, Forty Ackerman and, uh, Curtis Harrington and uh a true crime writer named uh, John Gilmore. And their stories all converge and, and overlap like during the course of the film. But uh yeah, I I got to I hang out with one of my uh uh childhood heroes, Forey Ackerman. I, I visited him quite a lot and hung out with him and and went to lunch with him and and um really had a good time. And I I was always hoping that I mean he had an enormous, enormous museum-worthy archive of, of tra- cinema treasures that he that surrounded him in, in his Acker Mansion, and um, it's sad to say all of that stuff has been scattered to the four winds. I mean he had been hoping that somebody like John Land, one of his old pals from the past, like John Landis, or perhaps Steven Spielberg. Would come to his rescue and, uh, and, and, and keep all of the collection intact in the form of a, a museum. He wanted it to be in Hollywood and he wanted it to be uh, focused on science fiction and horror. And, um, that never came to pass, unfortunately.
0: That, that, that's amazing. So you mean his, his uh, material hasn't made it into like say any of the Hollywood museums or anything at this moment? I you know I don't really know I know that that the lion share of it went up on
1: eBay almost immediately after he died. Uh-huh. Yeah, and so anybody who had a, a you know more than a few bucks could could scoop up the best of it and uh I have no <laughs> no idea where where that stuff uh, is now. I mean he had a, amazing treasures, you know.
0: What was it, what was the first uh, WrestleMania movie? Well,
1: um, the, my first release. I mean, I made a lot of movies before I th- uh, founded uh, WrestleMania, but the first Wessel, official WrestleMania release was uh, uh, my documentary about bullfighting, Toro Bolia. and uh, yeah, that was a result of spending four years uh, attending every single bullfight in Tijuana for four seasons both at the downtown Bull ring, which is no longer exists and, and the uh, Bull ring by the sea. Uh, there, the the Bull ring by the sea is still there. The downtown Bullring was shut down several years ago, unfortunately. Um, you know, it, it was a place that had been there since the turn of the century and, um, uh, and there's a lot of history there, and it was really, really sad when I found out that it was taken down. But you get to see it in, in Tarabolium. I was able to kind of uh, rescue its memory that way, and I think the documentary still holds up. It's still a powerful experience watching it. So that was my first official WrestleMania release, but I had... I had been making films since I was 11 years old and uh and uh so uh what would that be it's 1968 and you figure Tarbolium came out what year does it say on the back of that uh, uh that VHS copy that you have there what what year is on the back of the
0: cover of your tar- Oh the year Tarbolium Yeah what does it say It says this one is copyright 1994.
1: Yeah, 94 is when it's released. So you figure from 68 to 94, I, you know, I had been making films for about 26 years prior to that. And, uh, at that time, I, I was really infatuated with di- documentary form and nonfiction. And, um, I was watching a lot of, uh, uh, films by Frederick Wiseman. Throughout my teenage years and, uh, became completely obsessed with Cinema Verité. And I thought I wanted to make the ultimate Cinema Verité movie, uh, in a bull ring. And that's what I did. I, I, uh, Wiseman never made a film about bullfighting. So I thought, wow, great. I'm going to do it. And so I did. And, and like I say, I, every, every bullfight for 4 years i was there in the front row or in a what they call a palco which is a it's like a cement bunker a concrete bunker that's right on the level uh, of the bull and the matador and so i got amazing footage and uh really up close footage and then uh, when the bullfight is over i take you into the bull ring slaughterhouse too so you can see what happens to the bull there's nothing wasted um, all of the meat, uh, gets, gets sent to, uh, local meat markets and, uh, even, uh, um, charity meat markets and, um, nothing's wasted. It, it's all, uh, uh, it's all in the, uh, you know, interest of, uh, uh eating meat in the end. But, 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 but up to that point, it's, it, it's all about art and, uh, and, artistry, and uh, there's nothing like it. I mean, I remember the very first bullfight I attended, I felt this sense of going back in time. It was really odd, but I, I really felt a connection with the deep, you know, prehistory of bullfighting. Just attending that very first bullfight and hearing the music and seeing the pageantry, <coughs> and there's nothing like it. In fact, I've often fantasized about one day retiring in Mexico, and it would have to be by a bull ring. So, if I wasn't attending the bullfight, I could hear the beautiful music, the Pasadopolis. You no, know, I was
0: thinking about the, 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 the video uh, of Herb the Tijuana Brass, uh, the Lonely yeah. Bull. Now, yeah. what? What arena was that? Was that any of the arenas that you were videotaping, or was that a Mexican-City well, arena? No,
1: that was in Tijuana. He, uh, um, Herb Alpert got his inspiration uh, to do his mu- music with the Tijuana Brass from attending bullfights in Tijuana. Uh, that, that music is just so infectious that that's where he, Herb Alpert got his inspiration. And when I was a kid, When I was 10 years old, I picked up a trumpet and played trumpet, and I got to be pretty good. I was like a a first chair trumpet player in the uh, school orchestra, in the school band. And uh, uh, my hero was was Herb Alpert, and I loved that music. I I grew up listening. To me, the sound of the 60s is Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. My my parents played those records to me, and I, I would play them too, and I... I just adored Herb Alpert, and I wanted to be Herb Alpert when I was 10 years old. And um, as it turns out, uh, I, you know, many, many years later when I met Anton LaVey, he told me the same thing, that his parents took him to a bullfight in Tijuana at the old downtown bullring where I shot my documentary. And the very first time he heard that music, he became, he became so infatuated with it that he learned to play all those pasodobles, all those bullfight songs. Love played when he was a kid and, uh, ended up, uh, working for the Clyde Beatty Circus and playing Calliope and, and playing an uh, organ for the, uh, Clyde Beatty Circus. And, and for the Big Cat Acts, he would play, uh, not, trad- he would play the traditional circus songs. Certainly, but he loved to play the uh, bullfight, Pasodoble for the big cat acts in the circus. So yeah,
0: um, that really just, know, quote there—he had a lot of good things to say about the Terribolium. Ter- oh yeah. Your, well, what's funny <laughs> if, you, if you had been, if you had, had your camera at, at the Roman Coliseum, you
1: know? <laughs> oh yeah, at the circus. Like, yeah, he goes. Yeah. Uh, well, you can read it from the back of the uh, box. Well, oh, you okay. read
0: what LeVay said about Toro Let's see. Oh, okay, there it is. That's, that's what I was looking for. Too bad Larry Wessel wasn't around with his camera in Rome filming the Circus Maximus. <laughs> <laughs> How did you end up being Anton LeVay? Well, that's an
1: interesting story. It's a really long well I, I, I it's in my memoir but i I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, a a reader's digest condensed version i um uh, uh <clears throat> in 1992 um, during the la riots i was going around with my video camera filming all of the riot damage and my friend adam parfrey uh l- late publisher of of uh, feral house and before that of muck books he was a, a good friend of mine, and uh, one day, uh, ab- one morning, it was, after filming uh, riot footage and stuff, I-, I went over to visit him, and he was having breakfast, and uh, he told me that he was working on a documentary with Nick Bougas about Anton LaVey, and it was going to be called Speak of the Devil, and he was interviewing people um, for the documentary, and he knew that the Satanic Bible had a big impact on me when I was a teenager and that I had uh, purchased it at a book fair in high school and that I read it cover to cover right away and uh, it became kind of like my self-help book when I was a, a teenager, a shy teenager. <laughs> and so uh, I had already... Adam already knew this about me, and he said, "Larry, I want you to tell that story in my documentary." And I said, "Well, certainly, I'd love to, you know." And so um, (laughs) I said, "I'll go home and and, and dress up in a black suit and a black tie, black shirt, (laughs) and and all of this." And uh, he said, "No, I want you to, I want you to just stand in the front yard right now, and I'm going to videotape you." And so I was kind of on the spot, you know, but I, I, of course I agreed. And, uh, so I'm wearing a a red wife beater t-shirt and and shorts and tennis shoes (laughs) and I'm standing on Adam's lawn, uh, in LA and, uh, talking about how the, uh, how, how the, uh, satanic Bible, uh, influenced me as, as a kid, you know, and, uh, and, uh, I went, I went on and on and on and on about it and I thought it would, he would be cut, you know, and, and, uh, I might have a few seconds in the documentary order, but, uh, Nick Bugas was so impressed with what I had to say that he left the whole thing in. So you can see me in Speak of the Devil, a documentary about Anton LaVey, uh, pontificating about, uh, the satanic Bible. Well, so. That was that, you know. That was this one morning in Los Angeles in '92, and then um, what happened after that was really peculiar. I was invited to a record release party for a band called Ethel Meat Plow. Now the member, I-, I was friends with the members of this band, and they got a contract from Warner Brothers, so they threw this huge party uh Warner Brothers did and uh it was like free flowing alcohol it was just unbelievable and there were a lot a lot of people showed up to this thing and the the bar was like about five or six people deep and I, it was hard to even belly up to the bar to get a drink but uh I was there waiting you know my turn to get a drink and this gorgeous young woman was staring at me from the other end of the bar and caught my eye and we made eye contact, and she just slowly, it was almost like a movie. She just kind of very slowly drifted toward me, and she said, I saw you in the Satan, the Satan documentary. And I said, what Satan documentary? I Nobody had even told me that this film had been completed. And so she told me that it, it premiered up in San Francisco, and that Anton LaVey was so impressed with my section of the documentary that he wanted to meet me. And and Becky said, I can introduce you to Anton LaVey. How would you like that? And I said, I would love that. She said, well, when's the next time you're going to be in San Francisco? I said, well. And I knew I had some vacation time coming up at work, so I said, I don't know. In a couple of weeks? She goes, it's done. She goes, Uh, come up and you can stay with me in my apartment and I will introduce you to Anton Levay because he said he really, really wants to meet you. And, and she says, by the way, one of the last things she told me, she goes, by the way, I sleep in a coffin. So I thought that was really, that was really funny and, and both funny and kind of intriguing, a little creepy, you know, but I said, you know, okay, I'll, I'll stay with you. And, And, uh, so, Boy, oh boy, I, got, I was real excited and I was a little disappointed that my friends didn't tell me, you know, the film was out or anything. And so eventually I, you know, I contacted Bugus, and he sent me a, you know, a nice uh, VHS, it co- was on VHS at the time. He sent me a VHS copy of it and uh, a bunch of covers, you know, and, and things, uh, ephemera. And so, uh, and so I, uh, went to San Francisco to meet Anton LaVey. And um, boy oh boy that was a life changing experience and uh, he, we became very fast friends and one of the things I was worried about is because I had you know read up I had done a lot of re- reading about LeVay and read his book and everything else and I knew that he was a real serious animal uh animal lover and I thought oh no what's going to happen I, I'm working on this documentary about bullfighting and uh, I, I I want to tell him about it, but I'm worried that uh, he might take offense, you know. And the exact opposite was true. He said that Larry, he said, I'm a very serious aficionado of bullfighting. He says, he said, uh, you know, and then he told me the story about how he learned to play the Pasadomlas by visiting Tijuana's bullring ring when he was a child. And, uh, He told me about his favorite Manador. and He told me all these great bullfight stories. And I was just enthralled and so happy that he was into bullfighting. It was great. And then that night, I mean, any visit with Anton LaVey extends into the wee hours of the morning. And, you know, you don't get out of there until the sun comes up. And so um, during those wee hours... He invited me into his kitchen where he had his keyboard set up, and he played for me all of this this wonderful, wonderful medley of bullfight passive place. and it just brought tears to my eyes. It was incredible, and no sheet music or anything; it was all from memory, you know. And a li- a lifelong love of bullfighting.
0: It's Go figure. <laughs> well, somebody who appears, uh, we have, we got a mutual friend in Palace of Wonders. Uh, who was telling me about his visit to, uh, Anton Ove, and apparently, he played like a really mean God Bless America on his organ.
1: Oh, I, I believe
0: it. Probably was full, full of bombast and, yeah. and, and
1: uh, <laughs> yeah, cause, uh, his,
0: uh, uh, keyboard. He was imagining the head of the Church of Satan playing God Bless America and singing it robustly. Oh, yeah. Oh,
1: well, <laughs> well, well, certainly, yeah, I mean, March music was uh, very, uh, He's very into Sousa and all the great, uh, March songs and, uh, God bless America, of course. Yeah, I, I could, uh, uh I've never heard him play it, but I, am certain that he did an amazing rendition okay. of it. Uh, cause he loved, he loved, uh, music like that. It was full of bomb, what he called bombast. <laughs> uh,
0: and, and you're in, uh, Ultra Megalopolis. Is this, this is the one where you, uh, go, videotape at the, uh, Martin preschool, correct?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that, whole, that whole witch hunt was going on uh in, in my hometown, so it was kind of embarrassing, you know, that Manhattan Beach became the uh the center of uh satanic panic, but <laughs> it was and it was a witch hunt and, and those uh those uh, preschool teachers all uh Got completely financially ruined by their attorneys. The only the people that made money, uh, profited from that were were the attorneys, and um, they were all bankrupt at the end of that. It was like an it was the longest criminal trial in the history of America. I think it went on for over eleven years, and uh, uh, at the end of it, all the preschool teachers were defamed and slandered. And, uh, penniless. And it was just horrible. And, um, yeah, that was the, 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 uh, the mecca for that was, uh, uh, Manhattan Beach. And it caused what's known, I, we, we know now about things like, uh, panic and, and, uh, and how, uh, people can spread that kind of misinformation across the globe. Rapidly through organizations uh, that were all set in place for that it, it was just it was just awful and and yeah I mean anyway, yeah, that's part of ultra mega right well the,
0: the reason I mentioned it is when I was uh, I moved to California around that time around the time that the Martin trial was coming to an end. And I remember going to that preschool, and walking around, when I heard that they were digging up tunnels, and so I was like looking to find the tunnels. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, we're talking about tunnels that are supposed to go all the way from Manhattan Beach to Hollywood, right? <laughs> really, really huge tunnels, and I'm yeah. like seeing these little gullies in there. And there's a lot of video that that you shot also as they were digging up around the uh, around the school at the time. Yeah, well, I. And,
1: I was fascinated with it because it was happening right in my backyard, you know. And, uh, so I collected all of the newspaper art, local newspaper articles from the very first newspaper article was astounding. The, The sensational nature of the, uh, news reporting was also outrageous. And it got to be so bad that all of these people, I mean, people don't, people think of Oprah Winfrey as this like, new age, you know, sweet guru, of all things, you know, nice. She was like one of the biggest muckrakers during the McMartin preschool days. She was on TV talking about, you know, satanic cults uh, molesting children and stuff. Like at the very beginning, uh, it was Oprah and Geraldo Rivera, you name them all of those all of those uh, so-called journalists were just uh, um, causing those kind of rumors to to spread like wildfire across the country and pretty soon everybody in the country says that they were victims of satanic child abuse and it was mass hypnosis it was all bullshit and um, what we now call satanic panic and that was just such a weird uh, time to live through and witness, you know. Uh, wow.
0: So, yeah. you, your Palace of Wonders, uh, the, the the latest movie. I think you're actually working on this when, when I knew you back in the '90s, but uh, or portions of it anyway. Well, actually, the the first
1: footage I shot was in the yeah. Pretty close to the '90s. It was in the year 2000. Right, right.
0: More, more like the year 2000.
1: And I think that's right around the time that I met you too. Mm-hmm. I, I was, I've been thinking about this since you wanted to do, to do the podcast. Do you remember how you,
0: the circumstances under which you met me? Well, it was, uh, it, it uh, we went to uh, what was that Blue Studio? Yeah, Blue Studio and. And, and, uh, and the woman who ran Blue Studio was having a, a film festival and, uh, Donald Jackson of Hell Comes to Frogtown was there. And, uh, and so that, I think that, that's where we first met because I think that's where I got your card. And I also met Donald Jackson too. And, and I got stories, stories about Donald Jackson as well. I mean, we used to drive up and down Hollywood, uh, with a, with uh, one of the girls I was in, one of the women that was in my movie uh Catholic school catfight and we go to graveyards and video and all that and it was like once upon a time in Hollywood. But anyway, that's where we met. Yeah, well she uh she used to have
1: these blue studio screenings um outside of the blue studio. I, I think uh it must have been at one of the early venues where she would have a, uh these screenings and the uh, the concept was that anybody could be represented in one of her screenings if you uh submitted a vHs tape that was five minutes or less, that was the only rule okay. right five minutes or less it would, it would be guaranteed a screening and and the screenings she would always provide uh uh free pizza <laughs> and all the screenings you could eat, it was all you can eat pizza so that it was a pretty neat thing and um that's where I met you at one of those. And then um, there were, a, were quite a there – there were weekly or biweekly screenings, I think it was. And I always submitted a five-minute I, – I, I cut together a little five-minute something or other and would show them. And my films became really popular at these screenings uh, with Gloria and her husband, Don. Now, Don was this mysterious man. He was an art collector. And he collected Warhol on paper. Like he originally, as a teenager, he actually was able to obtain five Andy Warhol paintings, original paintings. And then when they skyrocketed in price, he's, he, he like made tens of millions of dollars just on these five paintings, like over $10 million wow and 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 gave some of that fed some of that into his father's uh company when his father ran a uh business that uh called california tan which is a, a most popular supposedly at the time the most popular tanning lotion in brazil <laughs> i remember and but it was like a bit it was a, it was a big money maker and uh they 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 were one of the first people to experiment using hemp oil, and he had a big hemp plantation somewhere in Hawaii where they were making the hemp oil for their beauty products. And anyway, he uh, um, was a multi, 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 multi-millionaire and was really like Andy Warhol's biggest fan. And he had a, a – <laughs> there was an office building on Wilshire Boulevard where one uh, uh, one floor of the building, I think it was the seventh floor, if I recall correctly, was his, and every inch of wall space on that entire floor uh, was covered with Warhol prints. And when I found out about this, I told Gloria, I said, you know, I uh, I, I want to make a documentary about uh, collectors. And I want to start with your husband's Warhol collection, and so she told him, and he said, "Yeah, anytime Larry wants to come over, he can inventory my entire collection. In fact, he'd be doing me a favor because I don't have such a video record of of my collection. So I, you know, I I I filmed uh, his entire collection of Warhols, and that was the very very beginning, and it was uh, my first digital." Uh, First time using digital equipment too, and um, so from there, I thought I would be making a film about collectors. And over the years, um, Iconoclast came out, Love Love came out, mm-hmm. Eric and Shay came out. All of those documentaries I made uh, placed my collector documentary on the back burner. So I had all this collection of footage that I would collect over the years, uh, even though even while I was making other documentaries, I had a, over like twenty years worth of footage, and I thought, well, enough is enough. I've got to put this stuff together, and uh, and that's that's where you get Larry Wessel's Palace of Wonders. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and it became more than just a documentary about collectors. It became right. a documentary about artists. And, uh, writers and historians and collectors all together, all uh, intertwined together and overlaid together so that it makes sense. That it's, uh, it's, it's almost as if I found these collectors in our amazing collections and they, I put them in my own museum called Larry Wessel's Palace of Wonders. Right. And when you, when you see this uh, DVD, um, you get the experience of of seeing all this marvelous stuff and all of this art being created as well, and it becomes it becomes a really positive creative experience. I hope for for the viewer, you know, that yeah. that's what I was trying to do. I didn't want to uh, have anything. In a horror related or a negative or a crime, true crime related, because there's too much of that shit nowadays yeah. anyway. Like I, uh, it's disgusting to me. And mm-hmm. so I, I wanted to create an anecdote to that, something really pleasant and life affirming and, uh, gratifying for people so that they have a wonderful, Positive experience watching uh, Larry Wessel's Palace of Wonders. There, there's right. nothing in it that will give you nightmares. It's all positive, and if anything, it will spark uh, creativity in your own mind and, and your own work and uh,
0: inspire love, you to things like I that. I love how we go from, like, the Black House of Anton LaVey and also Leonard Knight, who uh, paints gospel messages on the side of mountains, is also in the movie as well. And well, yeah. Oh well, absolutely.
1: I mean, you uh, Leonard Knight is one of the most pure uh, artists I've ever met, and and uh, to see what he, he he created his his own living environment in the middle of the desert and built a holy mountain to boot in the middle of the desert, and people he had people uh, making pilgrim. Pilgrimages to his holy mountain from all around the world and became a mass media sensation. And it was all, uh, with this desire of, uh, telling the world about, you know, his conversion to Christianity, you know, uh, his, uh, uh, the sinner's prayer, you know, that was a, the, uh, that was his big message and he wanted to spread. Spread the gospel of love. He wanted everybody to love each other and it was coming from a position of, uh, uh, uh of being the guy to, to inspire you to think about love. And, that, and when you came away from a visit with him, that's all you would think about is this message of love, you know, and, and, uh, so I thought that was really inspiring and I, I wanted to, uh, send a similar message with Palace of Wonders. I wanted to spread the word of love, you know, and then there's too much hatred in the world and too much right. negativity. And, uh, Leonard was great. He was, he, uh, he was a folk singer as well. You know, he wrote his own folk songs and I have him singing in the documentary about his flower trees, you know, and, uh, discussing his creative process. And you actually, you know, he tells you how he makes everything and, uh, Yeah, he's like one of the uh, great folk artists uh, that we have in America. Sadly, he passed away fairly recently and uh, is no longer with us. But I was lucky to uh, have had the opportunity to visit him on three or four occasions and collect video footage along the way.
0: Mm -hmm. Hmm. Well, just to kind of. Wrap up. How are you adapting? I just want to know kind of your 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 thoughts on our streaming world now, working with Facebook, YouTube, uh, because I know that you, like me, and actually anybody of any political strike these days, at one point you somebody is wound up in Facebook jail at one point in their life, I think. You yeah. know, and uh, how how are you adapting to just everything new? Because back then it was videos. You had you had to put them in envelopes and send them out. Are you still doing that, or do you see yourself getting more into streaming at some point? Well, I
1: haven't started, you know, selling streaming content yet. I'm a a consumer of streaming content. Almost nightly, I'm streaming something, and it's usually a documentary. And it's, uh, you know, through Amazon Prime mainly. Um, I've subscribed to uh uh anything that comes up like the the new uh there's an incredible new uh Peter Jackson documentary about the Beatles called Get Back. And in order to watch that you had to uh, uh subscribe to Disney Plus. Mm-hmm. So for $1.99, ninety nine, I subscribed to Disney Plus you know month for a month, and then I immediately canceled it. But I but it, it allowed me to see um this Eight-hour documentary about the Beatles, which is one of the most terrific things I've ever seen. Um, you actually get to see the Beatles creating music, like from scratch, coming up with lyrics to, to uh, you know, to two albums, uh, "Let It Be" and "Abbey Road." You you see them uh, uh, in the studio and their working methods and everything. It's just extraordinary. I've never seen anything like it. And that was, you know, that was something that I, I streamed. Um, but right now I have a DVD shop set up, you know, called Wesselmania.BigCartel.com, and I sell my DVDs there. Uh, the memoir is going to be released through Amazon. I'm self-publishing on Amazon. So I no longer have to worry about going to the post office anymore. I just think that's the most beautiful thing is that you can self-publish, Amazon gives you 50% of every sale. You're mm-hmm. not going to get that from any book publisher, you know, and you get Amazon, the, the behemoth seller of all things, you know, selling your, uh, merchandise and, um, and you make a hefty profit. You make a hefty profit. And, uh, I just can't imagine anything better than that for a book, you know, so, and it's going to be a paper book. I, I'm not a big fan of e-books or anything like that, so I don't see it being an e-book. It could be an e-book as well. I don't know yet. I won't decide yeah. that now. But for now, I have it in my mind that I, I want it to be a paperback, and as uh, somebody can hold and uh, smell and and paint right. you it's it's more of a, a tactile uh, sensation you get reading a book than you do it, uh, anything online, you know. But uh Oh, i don't know in the future i might start streaming my uh old uh inventory of films one at a time i guess i don't know yet i yeah. i i just i just love it's the same tactile thing with uh, uh dvds you know i i i like the feel of a dvd and um i i like to you know open it up and it, it, and it's like uh like with uh Oh, where is it? Uh, my Palace of Wonders DVD. Um, what, uh, you know... <laughs> there it is. Uh-huh. Uh, you can... Uh, let's see, let me open it up for you here. What's cool, what I think is real cool about DVDs is that you can not only have a nice uh, artful display on the cover... I can get this thing open for you. Sorry, too slow. I'm sure. Uh, get the uh, shrink wrap off of it. <laughs> the shrink wrap is an added element, you know, too, that makes it nice because it's nice and pristine when it arrives in the mail. But uh, you can open it up, and inside, you have you have a you can print on the disc. You see, and uh, with uh, *Palace of Wonders*, I thought it'd be really fun to uh, have a disc that, uh, uh, which is kind of like a, a piece of the uh, cover artwork. Um, but it shows that I have a, you, you know, depending upon your uh, temperament, either a third eye or a hole through my head <laughs> right in the middle, which I, I thought was a great design, you know, for the for the disc. Okay. And and so you don't get that with a. Uh, uh with a uh, uh something that you download from the from the internet uh but you you can hold it in your hand it's just a nice item and, and it tells you all of the right players on the back and everything but uh i i just like DV- I still like dVds and uh i even like uh uh vinyl Lps too you know i recently got a new turntable and i love playing the old records. And um, I never threw away any of my records from when I was a kid. I still have them, and um, they're,
0: they're. I, I, I had a past guest tell me that there's actually VHS conventions now. Oh
1: uh, yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I know that uh, VHS. Uh, there's a whole lot of collectors out there that love their VHS tapes, and God bless them. You know, I. Uh, I don't. You know, I. I still have all of my old. DV, uh, 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 VHS tapes, but I I do prefer to watch them in a sharper resolution, which you do get with DVD, you know, and uh, nowadays, you know, Blu-ray, I suppose. But I don't even have a uh, high-definition television at home. I, 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 I still in the living room, we still have a huge uh, Sony um, television in there, and um, we get everything uh Wi-Fi to it and uh-huh. um, so I watch all these things in the li- in, in the living room with my mother and so it's a lot of fun to do that right now and that TV is still good and uh, it uh, one day it will when it does uh, uh, not function anymore I'll replace it with a, uh, a nice HD monitor a real big one you know but right now it's a 40 inch TV it's pretty big and it's uh, big enough to enjoy a movie on and uh so you know if it ain't broke why you know why fix it or why replace it i always say so
0: anyway well, yes the we'll the lockdown man, and I mean you can't go to theaters anymore you know you got this nice big TV Yeah, i mean it's got to the point I mean even before the uh
1: before the uh covid raised its ugly head I've always been a homebody anyway, so i always always loved, uh, loved being at home and working on things at home and entertaining myself at home as well. Uh, although I did occasionally like to go out to the movies. <clears throat> I haven't been out to the movies in, I don't know, maybe five years, something like that. And uh, I don't miss it at all. I mean, I think about it, but... uh not with the you know, I really want this COVID thing to just be done and over with, you know, so I don't have to even you know, think about it. Mm-hmm. But it's just uh, such an awful prospect, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't mind being isolated. It's fine for me. You know?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, it, 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 it's strange when to a uh, theater these, and I know we could talk forever on this, but it's like it's really strange even going to a theater these days. I have yet now to be in a theater where it's not like a night at the opera where you have to select a seat before going into the theater. And then if you decide to move, maybe you're next to some rowdy people in the theater or whatever, you actually have to do another cash transaction to get another seat on the other end of the theater. And like, you know, the golden age of the 70s when we went to theaters, Oh, this person I don't want to sit here anymore. You just move it move to another seat. Now it's like a whole new financial transaction just to move your seat. Oh, what a ra it's a
1: ba you know, it's a racket already. It's already a rip off the whole thing. And and to, to hear that they wanna charge you double for uh changing your seat, it just just appalling to me, you know?
0: Well, uh, cool. I want to thank you for for, 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 for being on my podcast. And like I said, I, I know we could just go on for hours and hours and hours. Uh, yeah. but, well, uh, what we already
1: have we've gone on for an hour, so that's twice as long as uh, as you had planned. So feel free to cut whatever you want or keep whatever you want. I don't care. So <laughs> I've had a ball. It's been fun. Always fun talking with you,
0: Dwayne. Well, I want to want to thank uh, everybody for 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 watching and. Um, and you can check out uh, Larry's um, Larry's videos at Westalmania.BigCartel.com. So uh, again, uh, th- thank you for being with us, and uh, and of course I'll see you next time on uh <laughs> I'll see you next time on the Walkertown Report. Thank you for listening to the Walkertown Report. Links to any product discussed on the Walkertown Report may be found in the description. If you do not have access to the description, please visit walkertown.com for more information. Thank you for listening to the Walkertown Report.